Welcome to episode four of the Jay Martin Show. My name is Jay Martin. I am an investor and the CEO of Cambridge House. And today I'm joined by Grant Williams, the author of the newsletter, Things That Make You Go Hmm, and the host of the Grant Williams podcast. But far more interesting, back in 2014, Grant had a vision, a vision to bring the most intelligent, engaging, and original people in finance to a wider audience on an internet-based financial media platform. Now, just thinking about this today, because this is the industry that I work in, Grant was a huge inspiration to me. The company that I'm talking about is Real Vision. Grant and Raul Paul co-founded Real Vision TV back in 2014. And I remember sitting at a table with Grant Williams in Palm Springs, California in 2013, and he was pitching me on the idea, telling me what he wanted to do because he had access to so many amazing investors amazing money managers and entrepreneurs, and he wanted to democratize that information. Now, I mean, what a novel concept. Today, this is all I do and what so many of my peers do. And Grant Williams was the inspiration for this entire sector. And he's such a class act and such a smart guy. So I really, really value every minute I get to spend with Grant. This conversation was no exception. Super, super interesting. We talked about the future of retail investing on the back of platforms like Reddit and Robinhood, but what really this means for the future. We talked about market corruption and the impact this is having behind the scenes. We talked about the impact and influence of social media on crisis these days and how that has changed the game in terms of society's response to crisis. We talked about the sovereign debt crisis and the potential end game. And I tried my best to drag Grant's most valuable leading indicators in front of a market crash out of them because as you know, every market pundit loves to tell us what just happened and why. And that's valuable to know, but more important would be what's about to happen next. Now, nobody knows the answer to that, but Grant's a pretty smart guy. So I wanted to pull from him the leading indicators that he pays the most attention to to determine what he should be doing with his cash. We talked about inflation. We talked about the commodity sector. And as always, I pulled his top book recommendations. This was a super fun interview. It always is. And Grant's going to be at my show in Vancouver, Canada, January 16th and 17th at the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference. I can't wait. It's our first physical in-person event. It will have been 24 months, and I can't wait. I am frothing at the mouth to bring this one back. So check us out on cambridgehouse.com for any info regarding that event. I can't wait. Hope to see you there in person. It's going to be a total blast. Anyways, here's Grant Williams from the Grant Williams Podcast. Enjoy. All right, guys, Jay Martin here, CEO of Cambridge House, and I'm joined right now by Grant Williams, the author of Things That Make You Go Hmm, one of the most widely read financial newsletters in the business, and the host of the Grant Williams podcast. Again, one of the most listened to podcasts in the business. Grant, it's good to see you. Hey, buddy. Yeah, good to see you. It's, uh, it's been a while, right? It's, it's certainly been a while since we saw each other in person. Yeah, yeah, it sure has. But it's good to see you again, and I want to run through a variety of topics with you. Um, I thought a good place to start would be this this Reddit short squeeze scenario, because I recently listened to one of your podcasts with Bill Fleckenstein and your guest was Mark Cahodes, um, two of, I guess, what you described as the most accomplished short sellers in your network. Mm-hmm. And you guys jumped into the narrative that the media is kind of layering on top of this. So why don't we start with that, Grant? Because you guys had some really valid points uh, in terms of, of 
you know, short sellers being bundled into a basket of evil and retail investors being bundled into a basket of good. And it's this binary perspective, which obviously isn't how things really work. So yeah. what are some of the most important points that people are missing right now, Grant, when it comes to that scenario? Well, I think, you know, this is something that I've talked about a lot over the years, this, this, um, this narrative that short sellers are evil. And there's, and it's been, look, it's been very carefully constructed because, we as human beings, we need a villain. We need an easily identifiable villain that we can say is, you know, it used to be in the Westerns, the guy would wear a black hat so you knew exactly who the villain was. Yeah. And it's the same with short sellers, right? People point to them because markets are supposed to go up. If the market goes up, everybody gets richer. Um, and if the market goes down, it's a bad thing. Up is good, down is bad. And so anyone that profits from the market going down is very easy to demonize as a bad guy because they want the market to go down. What could be more un-American than wanting the <clears throat> stock market to go down? Right. Yeah, you know, the reality of it is way more nuanced than that, which is the point we were trying to make in this podcast. You know, um, there are different kinds of short sellers. Uh, and the guys who, um, you know, everyone's heard of a pump and dump scheme, which is where you, you, you run these penny stocks up, you buy your own shares, you sell a great story. And when all the retail comes in, you sell them your shares, you walk away clean. The short sellers on the on the downside do a similar thing in reverse. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll short shares, then they'll put a, a scandalous article out and you know, drive the shares lower and they'll cover their profits and walk away. Now, there is no difference apart from market direction between the pump and dump artists and those kind of scammy short sellers, none. Right. But how often do you read long articles about how evil pump and dumpers are, right? You just don't do it because they get lost in a generally rising market. Um, right. And they're not so easy to kind of pick out. Uh, alongside those guys, uh, there are real short sellers. There are guys like Mark Cahodes who who seek out fraudulent companies who are you know, up to bad things and, and they go after them. They try and put nefarious CEOs in prison. They try and um, expose companies selling fraudulent products or, or, or running bad numbers. You know, and people forget Enron was exposed by short sellers. Tyco was exposed by short sellers. MCI Welcome, you go through every, just about every big corporate fraud right. in living memory and all of them were exposed ultimately by short sellers. Um, and so that kind of little corner of the short market is I think incredibly important to protect. Those guys should be actually protected and not vilified and hounded out of town because they provide a very important check and balance on a system that is heavily uh, um, overloaded in the other direction. Right. They're like alongside, the big yeah, exactly right. But alongside that, and here's where the the Reddit GameStop thing comes into play. You have hedge funds who, by the very nature of the name of them, are hedged. So they have long positions, they have short positions to hedge them. Now, sometimes those short positions become like the GameStop was ridiculously over leveraged. So when you have a company where there is 120% of the shares sold short, and I remember this from the days when I was trading Japan back in the day, this is a really easy short squeeze, right? We had, we had companies buying back their own shares to the point where the shorts were in a, a no-win situation and holding them to ransom. Those are the guys that have triggered this. It's not the short sellers of the world. It's it's the it's the people who are levered short. And there is a very important difference to understand. They're not short sellers as people understand them to be. They're not evil guys trying to profit from companies going down. They are um, trying to profit from a particular situation that they find in a stock that they think is going to go lower. But right. the addition of leverage to that position is what causes the problem. Anytime you have extreme leverage, that's why these things move so far, so fast. So. You know, what we've seen is actually some very smart work on, on behalf of some of the guys in the Wall Street Bets bulletin board identifying the situation, 
identifying the fact that these shares were way too short, the leverage was way too high, and this was ripe for a squeeze. That was that was tremendous work. The problem comes when it becomes something that retail is basically strongly encouraged to get involved. Because unfortunately, just because of the rules of this game or any game, by the time the retail investors are aware of this, two things happen. One, the game to some extent has passed. And two, they're encouraged to do things that they really don't understand. Right. And so what we saw was a ton of people piling into GameStop at three, 400 bucks because, hey, this is the easy way to make money, you know, have fun staying poor. And if you're not holding on, you're crazy. And all the stuff we saw, which to unsophisticated investors sounds great and everybody's making money and they're going up every day and people are popping champagne corks and buying Lamborghinis on Twitter. Yeah. And they get sucked into that because man has a fascination of, of <clears throat> work without work. Of course, a few days later, the people who paid three or four hundred dollars are staring sixty dollars in the face and wondering what happened to most of their money. Mm -hmm. That's that's the real shame of this. So, yeah, it, 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 these things never end well, unfortunately, for retail. Finance is a very complicated game, and I, and I totally understand the impulse to stick it to Wall Street. Right, I totally understand where that comes from. I've been sure. writing and talking about it for a couple of years now. Yeah, um, and it's justified. It's hugely justified. But it, the the ire that's pointed at evil short sellers is misplaced. You know, if people actually took the time to really understand how we've got where we are and how the game is actually rigged, they would understand that the game is rigged at the central bank level, not the hedge fund level. The mm. central banks rig the game for the hedge funds, um, and the hedge funds have basically reached the point where the Fed and other central banks around the world are captive because they've gone so far that if they step away from backstopping the financial system now, the whole thing falls over. Right. So what, what, what the central banks have done to Main Street is way more egregious than what the hedge funds have done to Main Street, but it's that much more difficult to understand. And so right. identifying this villain, yeah, you put this villain up there, the evil hedge funds, evil short sellers, right. and it's very convenient, and it gives people a focus for their anger. Um, and in some cases, it's rightly placed. Some of these hedge funds using too much leverage, some of these short sellers that are scam artists, totally right. But bracketing them all together and not acknowledging the damage done by central banks' uh, policies for the last 10, 20, 30 years, I think is to miss the point as significantly. So you touched on something there, too much leverage. And I think that's one of the core issues right at the root. But can you define something for us, Grant? Because you mentioned there is a 120% short position on GameStop. So explain what that means. Well, if, if, you, if you are shorting shares, you are supposed to borrow the shares first, right? So, so uh, let's say a pension fund holds a load of GameStop shares in, in a big fund. The hedge funds will go to their prime broker and they say, I want to borrow some GameStop shares. And if they have availability of the shares, they'll, they'll lend them the shares, which they then sell into the market. Um, and they will cover them back as and when, either for a profit or a loss. And they'll pay the prime broker um, a VIG for the use of the shares, which most of which gets passed on to the actual end owner of those shares. That's how you're supposed to do it. Mm. But um, oftentimes you have people doing what's called naked shorting where they don't borrow the shares first. They sell the shares short thinking they can scalp a profit before it becomes a problem. That's how you end up with 120% of the shares sold short. People are naked shorting. And once that happens, obviously, that's where the squeeze comes in because that extra 20% uh, they're not. You, you can only deliver them by going into the market and paying whatever price you have to pay. So if the people borrow, are lending the stock out, uh, say we want to recall our stock, 
everyone that's borrowed that stock has to cover their positions and send the shares back. And there's, you know, it's like a game of musical chairs. Mm. There's, there's one share uh, too few and there's 20% shares too few. And so people have to cover them back at the prevailing market price. Right, right. Okay. Now, what are your thoughts on, so, so Robinhood halted purchasing on, I think eventually ended up being about 35 stocks that, that were available only to be sold. So I think now we're kind of learning there was a liquidation crisis, right? They, they were insolvent for a period of time and, and had to uh, make that decision at a platform level. But again, Grant, like, what are your thoughts on that decision? Was it the right thing to do? Was it the only thing to do? And how does that impact retail? Most importantly, how does that impact retail investors' perspective of what's going on? Well, they didn't really have a choice. Um, the, the, to be honest, the real problem here is that the CEO of, uh, of Robinhood went on CNBC that morning and lied to the public. He told them they didn't have a liquidity crisis. And later that day in a clubhouse room with, of course, Elon Musk, he admitted that they had a $3 billion margin call they couldn't meet, and they talked the regulator down to $770 million, and then went out and promptly raised $2.4 billion from investors. Right. Now, that used to be called securities fraud back in the day, right, when markets were actually properly regulated. So what they've done in terms of freezing access to accounts, uh, freezing access to certain shares and avoiding people being able to open new positions and stuff, yeah. that's nothing new. That's not something that came out the clear blue sky. And again, it comes back to the earlier point about the people getting into these things, not really understanding all the rules of the game. They didn't do anything untoward, technically speaking, right? Um, going into that, if you understood how Wall Street works, you would have understood that there is a chance here if, if the volatility gets too crazy that they will raise margin requirements. There are all kinds of things that can happen that mean this is not a simple trade that you can do whatever you want any day of the week guarantee. Right. To me, the real problem here, and it's the thing that people aren't talking about and they should be is the fact that because of the behavior that's been allowed to go on over the last 10 years particularly at a at a at a corporate c-suite level the malfeasance that's been allowed to go unpunished these guys are happy to get up on cnbc and say we we had no liquidity problem it's the flat out lie mm. and if you can do that on tv and there are no punishments uh, right. and again you know elon musk's famous funding secured tweet i mean here's a guy who committed securities fraud yeah um gets a 20 million dollar fine but meanwhile makes multiple billions in the value of his stock these guys are going to do this all day long they're going to pay the fines it's a it's a tax on doing business they'll pay the fines when they know that no one's going to jail no one's going to get any severe um punishments mm -hmm. uh and that's what undermines securities markets it's not it's not um clearing brokers, having margin calls and having to restrict the volatility, having to restrict access to people's accounts. That's not what's ruining and undermining securities markets at all. It's it's weak, uh, I would say, absent regulation on the part of the SEC and, and their ilk. Right, right. Okay, now, last question on this topic is maybe stepping back a little bit and, and talking about the bigger implications at like a society level. I had the privilege of sitting down with the 22nd Prime Minister of Canada, Stephen Harper, and, and a lot of that conversation was focused on the rise of populism and the divide within populism and the little events that have occurred to stimulate that divide. And you mentioned on your podcast with uh, Mark Cahotis and Bill Fleckenstein, that was maybe your biggest concern, yeah. right? Is what, what's, and what's the perspective that's, I guess, uh, ingrained in people when they go through this event? So. So what's what's your what's your biggest concern? Or what's the worst case scenario, I guess, at a cultural level? 
Well, look, this 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 fracturing of society is is evident for everybody to see. We can all see that, right? And and the, and the pandemic and lockdown has only exacerbated that. We've just gone through a very nasty election cycle in the U.S. Um, and this 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 idea of conflict is everywhere. It, it's and it's in every direction, right? It's it's left to right. It's old to young. Um, it's rich to poor. And and it's Wall Street to Main Street. Uh, and again, you know, this this wealth inequality, which is what this all stems from. Let's make no mistake about it. This is this is, you know, the ninety nine percent feeling like they're not getting a fair shake, and they're not getting a fair shake. The, the the rich are getting much richer. The billionaires are getting more billions to their name every day, mm. uh, and that again, I'm afraid it's it's it sounds like I'm I'm just droning on about the same thing. But this comes down to central bank policy. If you make the cost of capital zero percent, and you keep it there, and then you tell everybody, uh, whether implicitly or explicitly, that we've got your back, and if shares go down, we're going to step in and backstop you. Guess who's going to make money? The people with access to capital. Is that the poor in the world? No, it's not. It's the wealthy. So the wealthy get access to free capital, to free leverage, and, a, and an implicit backstop that whatever they buy is not going to be allowed to fall, and they make hay. And that's that's it, it's very, very clear where this has come from. Now, on the back end of it, when you look at, at how fractured society has become, you worry about boiling points being reached. And I, and I think um, I think that was – I, I did a, an interview at the beginning of 2020, and um, – the host asked me what my biggest fear for 2020 was, and it was that. It was social unrest. I said, I think this year is going to see a tremendous amount of social unrest. Now, obviously, I didn't know about the pandemic at that point. And right. didn't know exactly how the U.S. election cycle would go, but it, it's, this has been brewing for some considerable amount of time. And seeing, um, you know, seeing, and I was going to say I hate to keep picking on him, but I don't, going back to Elon Musk again, seeing the world's richest man, uh, using his influence to pump up penny stocks and you know change his Twitter header and put Bitcoin in there or GameStop or Dogecoin or whatever it is, yeah. so he can make another couple of hundred million dollars out of it. I mean, it's just it's shameful, frankly. It's just mm. shameful. But again, it shows what happens when you enable people to to think they're above the law. So I, I think what we saw in the U.S. Ele election cycle is a taste of things to come. I hope that. That the, that particular country can come together, as the UK has kind of done post Brexit. Um, you know that was another uh, debate filled with animosity on both sides, and it, it, now it's done. It's out the way. People right. have calmed down about it a lot. Um, uh, so hopefully that can happen in the US. But but make no mistake about it, the rich poor divide is is also you can you can pretty much put it into a boomer Gen Z divide millennial divide as well so it's it's not just rich and poor it's 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 old and young and right now the old the boomer generation still have the reins of power they're still the most broadly represented in the in the in the lawmaking chambers of the country right around the world but the millennials are starting to to wake up they're starting to feel aggrieved as they should be um and they're going to start trying to you know put their own representatives into the house and and for one thing i'm watching for is to start seeing a slew of young congressmen and women in the states, young senators and young MPs in in the UK and, and across Europe, that to me tells me that the day is drawing near where um, if you're if you're a boomer uh, and you've made your money, you better start thinking about how you're going to hang on to it because I suspect there's going to be all kinds of redistributive policies getting championed and uh, if they have their own way enacted, and that's that's going to be the only real way to redress this balance, unfortunately.
I like that perspective because that's, that's like the, op- I was going to ask you, you know, how does this unfold? And I w- was hoping we could find some sort of, I like to find the optimistic thread if I can, you know, and, yeah. and stepping back and watching this, it's easy to just get lost and think, okay, 2010, we had, you know, Occupy Wall Street uh, on the left and sort of the Tea Party forming on the right. And then fast forward to 2016, you know, Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, sort of the representatives of these ideas as they evolved. Fast forward to today, it's, you know, Antifa on one side, QAnon on the other, and it's accelerated this divide. Um, and I wondered, I know you're you're such a student of history, if we've ever seen this before, and my mind goes maybe to like the 60s and the 70s in the US, um, you know, there was some, some serious unrest that probably at the time looked irreconcilable. Um, and, and so maybe you've answered my question, but, you know, is that, is that the, is that the, how do you think this plays out in, in the next couple of years, Grant? Well, look, the, the, of course, this is nothing new. We've seen these times before in just about every country on earth. The difference here is we have um, an extraordinarily dangerous accelerant in the shape of social media. And sure. that's what we didn't have in the 60s. So it wasn't so easy to coordinate rallies. It wasn't so easy for all this stuff to take place. It wasn't so easy to spread fake news for one of a, a, a less um, trite term. Um, now that's the easiest thing in the world to do. And, and the, and, People realize that, and they and they use these tools, uh, not necessarily the way we all thought they'd be used when uh, they came into our lives a, a decade or two ago, but they're being used as as everything is right as a, as a means to an end now. And if the end is power in the in the in the shape of politicians, then these things are going to be used to create power. And how do you create power? You 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 build a base, you galvanize that base, and you demonize others. Um, and that's a great shame for social media. You know, as 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 a as a parent of two millennial children, you know, I I despair for 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 that generation and the ones that follow, because it's going to be so difficult to try and you know fight against the bombardment of of vested interest trying to make you think a certain way, trying to make you feel a certain way. Yeah. Um, but that's that's how it works, right? You 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 don't build a base of power without animated supporters who believe in the cause. And so I think that's the big difference between now and you used the example of the 60s, which is another great example. But the difference then was we didn't have social media. You couldn't galvanize a group worldwide. It was it was local rather than national and international. Yeah, man, you, you remind me of a conversation I had three years ago or so with Christopher Wiley, who was one of the early employees of Cambridge Analytica, um, we remember that name from the yeah. 2016 election and all this. And he was walking me through sort of the, the work they did where they would create thousands of fake social media personalities and form communities around radical ideas with the intention of speaking to somebody who had a thought in their head. They weren't comfortable vocalizing, but then they found a community online where it was normal yeah. and accepted to yeah. think yeah. that way. Right. And that's how they opened up these vulnerabilities fascinating everybody should look into that story okay i want to pivot because i also want to get your thoughts on um, markets and commodities and what your portfolio is going to look like for 2021 what's up everybody sorry for the interruption quick note if you enjoy these conversations i publish a weekly newsletter and it's free where i share my top takeaways lessons learned and any action steps i might be taking as a consequence in the market Sign up at cambridgehouse.com. I publish every week and it's free. Now back to the conversation. 
starting just with some uh, some thoughts on the various sovereign debt crises that we're running towards. And, you know, I, I recently hosted uh, the vir virtual version of the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference here in the channel. I had about 70 conversations with uh, amazing thought leaders. And, you know, I can't help but pick up on where there's consensus after that many conversations in such a short amount of time. And consensus certainly lands that we are in some version of the logical conclusion of our financial system as we know it right? How that's going to unfold, when that's going to unfold, and what's going to happen next is open for debate. Um, but what are your thoughts, Grant? I mean, you you host a show called The End Game. Um, so I'd love to get your thoughts on where you think we're at, you know, what developed sovereign nations are more at risk than others, and your, your broad outlook for 2021, and then we'll jump into some details. Yeah, well, look, I, you know, it's interesting because these sovereign um, debt crises have been brewing for years now. And, and, and again, the only thing that has stopped them has been the increasing um, insertion of central banks into the process. You know, I, was, I was reading this morning, I saw a chart that said that the ECB had bought 85% of sovereign issuance in Europe last year and 100% essentially of the southern European economies. Now, if you think that is sustainable in the long term, uh, I, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, it, 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 it just doesn't work. But again, going back to the point we were talking about earlier on, this, this idea that the central banks are so far into this now that they can't turn back, I think is very important for people to understand. They, they can't wean these, pay, these guys off um, the central bank being the backstop for their debt. And they can't do it at a time when everybody's deficits because of COVID spending, because of uh, fiscal stimulus, are blowing out to, to places that they haven't seen probably since World War II in most cases, and sometimes beyond that. Mm -hmm. So you know, when, when people talk about a sovereign debt crisis, realistically speaking, it's a central bank confidence crisis. That's, that's what people need to look for, is look for signs that the, the central bank policies are, are losing their efficacy. Um, whether it's auctions that, that, that don't go so well, whether it's central banks suddenly starting to have to buy 90% of issuance as opposed to 85, just to keep the wheels on, mm. which is which I'm pretty sure is going to happen. Um, I think watching the watching the central banks, watching the sovereign bonds is not really going to give you a heads up as to when things might be reaching the critical point. You have to understand how those prices are staying where they are, right? Uh, you have to understand what it is that's keeping bond yields so low. Uh, and the answer is simple. They cannot be allowed to rise because if they rise um, with the, the, the fiscal position of every single one of these countries, frankly, the whole thing is unsustainable. So it, it just doesn't work. And, and we have currency runs. We have all kinds of problems. So um, the, the sovereign debt crisis will be triggered by a crisis in confidence in central banks. And I don't know when that happens. Um, I'm I'm amazed they've managed to get away with it so long. But this ocean of liquidity they've been uh, they've been supplying has helped them do that. The their Achilles heel, and I think this is probably the biggest um, topic that people need to think about um, and decide where they stand on it. And for the coming year, or maybe the next three to five years, is inflation. You know, inflation is the one thing that can really take the decisions out of these guys' hands. And by inflation, I mean, I don't mean asset price inflation, which has been great for the people that have assets for such a long time. Right. We start to get consumer price inflation. We start to get wage inflation. We start to get raw material inflation, which we're seeing already quite, um, quite obviously in many places. That's the point where the Fed has to start making some um, 
drastic decisions. And I use the Fed as a, as a proxy for all the central banks in the world. They've already said that they are as opposed to 2% as their inflation target because it's undershot for a while. They're going to let it overshoot for a while, which is a smart move on their part because it, it, it allows them to talk soothingly if inflation gets to 3% about, oh, we're just going to leave it here for a little while and, and then it's going to come back and it's going to moderate back to 2%. But if 3% turns to 4% um, and, it, and, it, and it gets a tailwind behind it, particularly if inflation expectations are climbing, um, then this whole thing becomes much, much harder for them to manage because you can't really keep bond yields where they are when you have uh, inflation starting to creep higher significantly and dramatically. Um, and so, you know, I, I, that that Endgame series that we've we've been doing, Bill Fleckenstein and myself, um, you know, we've talked to a, a bunch of people way smarter than the two of us. Um, and there's there's great division in this in this uh, camp still. You know, Lacey Hunt has been a 40 year deflationary um, advocate. He's been right for 40 years essentially. He's still on that train. Um, Russell Napier has been on that train for 20 years. He's hopped off. He's now believes we're going to get significant inflation, um, if not by the end of 2020, and certainly in 2021. David Rosenberg's still on the deflationary train. There are other great thinkers who are on the inflationary train. And that, to me, is the one thing that everybody needs to think about, uh, to read about, to listen to people's opinions, and for their own portfolios, have an understanding of, okay, first of all, do I believe inflation is coming back? Because after 40 years, essentially, of deflation, portfolios around the world are not structured to do well in inflationary times. So if you believe inflation is coming back, you need to have a good long look at your portfolio, understand where the stress points are, understand what you can do to, to first of all, safeguard it against inflation and then perhaps make some money out of it. If you believe that inflation is not coming back, that's fine. But I think you know, we, we humans have a problem with extrapolation. And so because we've been on this long deflationary run, the easiest thing in the world for people to say is, ah, we don't have to worry about inflation. Right. And, and look, since the 1970s, you haven't. You've had 40 years when you didn't really need to worry about inflation. Mm. But if you look back and read some history around the 60s and 70s and you see what happened and you understand how quickly inflation can grab hold and how much damage it does um, to, to wealth, to savings, and to currencies – then you realize that it's it's a potential outcome that you absolutely have to take seriously and, and understand the effect it might have on you and then handicap whether you think it's a big problem or not. Right, right. Yeah, that recency bias, we're all a victim of that. I can speak yeah. personally. So, so then let's talk about how we safeguard ourselves, Grant, in a scenario where we can't be certain we're going to see increased inflation, but it's a possibility that we're concerned about. How then do you modify your portfolio to protect yourself? Well, if we end up in a period of inflation, then the simple thing is you don't want to be in bonds, right? That's not the place you want to be. And one would argue with bonds at 5,000 year high prices, mm. if you think there's even a small chance of inflation coming back, then you're, you've been given the perfect exit for, for at least to trim your bond portfolios down. Um, and people, again, you know, people think their bonds have done really well and they're loath to get rid of them. But the simple truth is they've only done well because of the central banks. That's why they've done well. So again, you, you come back to this idea that you have to decide whether you think central banks are going to remain omnipotent for the, for the foreseeable future. If you think they are, it, it gives them some um, leverage over the bond market. But if you think that that is fr uh, fraying, that confidence is fraying at exactly the same time that inflation may be making a comeback, 
then having a bond, a big bond portfolio is is a crazy idea. Yeah. Um, equities tend to do well in in uh, in inflationary periods, but again, we have stock markets at all time highs, and that's largely down to the passive investment phenomenon, which tells me that you should be looking at, at value stocks, at growth stocks, not momentum stocks, and that takes me to to commodity producers. You know, I look at I look at the commodity complex where you're starting to see some really good confirmation in terms of charts that the recent strength in commodities um, is a decent base on which to build. So looking at commodity producers who have all you know, had a pretty rough ride, many yeah. of whom have got their balance sheets in, in much better shape um, since, since the last bull run, ne- uh, necessarily so, uh, and they do offer value. Um, you know, we've seen a great run in uranium stocks recently. That those were, were priced extraordinarily cheaply. So I think we're going to see a return to value over growth. It may not come overnight, but it it's starting off on such a low base that you give yourself a very good chance of doing well if if that inflationary um, uh, that inflationary environment starts to kick in. You're having the opportunity to sell your bonds at five thousand year highs right. and buy inflationary uh, reactive growth stocks at relative lows compared to extremely overvalued momentum stocks in the market, which I, I think is a sensible trade. You know, precious metals, obviously, um, are a good way to protect wealth, even if you just use them as a liquid reserve before you before you use that cash to buy something else. And then, you know, cryptocurrencies, look, I, I, I don't spend a lot of time talking about cryptocurrencies. I have my views, but they're, they're not as useful to people as those who immerse themselves in this space are. So I really don't like to talk about it because I just don't think my views are worth that much. But you know, Bitcoin um, as an inflationary asset uh, is obviously a good idea. As a as a stable store of value, hmm. I think anyone that's that's bought it because they think it's a stable store of value has had several sleepless nights realizing that it isn't that. When it can go down, you know, twenty percent in a in, in a matter of hours, that's not a stable store of value. But will it do well in inflation uh, an inflationary environment? I would think so, unless. We see more regulation. We see more um, uh, see the, the, the crypto uh, cryptocurrency community being hamstrung by regulation and and, and by right. jealous central banks desperate to roll out their own currencies. So you know, I think there are plenty of um, tools by which to play an inflationary future. But the first thing you have to understand is a what damage could inflation do, and then b do I think deflation. Uh, do I think inflation is the likely future? Because maybe you believe there's going to be more deflation to come. Okay. Okay. Thank you for that. Now, back to commodities. I mean, it makes logical sense. Sell things when they're expensive, buy things when they're cheap. You'd think, uh, right? You'd think. <laughs> Try selling that to the people who bought GameStop at 400 Yeah, I know. I know. You know what? I'm optimistic, though, that we've created a whole population of new investors who are now watching the market and understand um, – you know, maybe this wasn't the best entry point, but see, I, that's interesting you say that, Jay, because I, I would think the the opposite is most likely to be true. That you've created yeah. a whole a whole you, you've created a small subsection of of a generation that have made a lot of money, but you've also created a ton of people who have lost eighty percent of their money, really important stimulus check money, yeah, um, overnight. And I I don't know, maybe maybe they think it's all fun and it's gambling and and it doesn't matter. That may be true, but I, I fear that the opposite is that these people can go, well, you know, I got burned in the stock market once, fool me once, shame on, on me, right? Yeah. 
And, and I think you're right on that point. I think the majority, unfortunately, will likely get washed out. I've taken it on as a personal mission, though, to re reach out with via our content to get in front of as many of these new traders as possible and say that's not the best strategy. Yeah, good for you. You could apply some patience, develop a strategy, and stick to your rules. Uh, you know, th this market isn't a a get rich quick scheme. It's a go broke fast scheme or a get rich slow scheme. But if you can master, you know, come up with your strategy, trust your process, have patience, all that stuff. Yeah. Very good advice. Okay. So back to commodities, you, you touched on inflation as a main driver. Uh, outside of that grant, are there any economic trends that would support your commodities thesis? And then equally as important that we could watch to discover that, oh, we're wrong. We're wrong. What's what we thought would unfold is not unfolding. Well, look, I, th I think you're, you're going to see a tremendous amount of infrastructure spending. I think that's a clear and obvious way for new administrations, the Biden administration for one, and others to to open the spigots um, without just sending stimulus checks to, to people. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm confident we're going to see that the Belt and Road Initiative is going to, is going to keep growing. Um, and I think you'll see infrastructure projects as a, as a, as a friendly way to print money right across the developed world. Um, if you look at uh, the amount of investment that's gone in to, um, to, to mining projects, it's some of it, in, I mean, the gold space particularly, so I think it's a 60 year low, the amount of money being invested in finding um, new, uh, new resources. Right. So you, you, you kind of have this perfect storm of, of low prices, um, low stockpiles, low discoveries, uh, your companies with improved balance sheets, and it's just waiting for that inflationary spark to give it a tail. And in the meantime, as I said, I, it looks to me like commodities have bottomed. It looks like there's a base building, enough of a base where when you start talking to people about owning commodity producers, they don't just laugh at your face and, and point you back towards Netflix. And that's you know that's the first thing that you have to have happen. You have to have people actually be prepared finally to listen to the story. Now, probably take them three or four times listening to it to actually act on it. Um, but that's what gives first mover advantage to people who are willing to look ahead and say, look, I know value stocks are on the nose at the moment. I know people don't like value stocks. It's all about growth. That's why you can pick them up cheap. And, and if you see that bottom in commodities, you see the potential for inflation. There's no guarantee it's going to happen. Um, you know, there are, there are enough stars lining up, I think, that you can start to, to, to allocate carefully to that to that space and broadly to that space because I think it's it's a tide that will lift uh, all boats in the commodity sector. Got it. Okay. Okay, now I'm running up against the clock here with you. Actually, a question I definitely wanted to ask was last time we spoke, uh, a gentleman in Moscow, <laughs> your book recommendations, I picked it up because um, you told me like it was one of these books that I read the last page, I flipped it over, opened it up again and read it a second time. And uh, yeah, it was what an awesome read. Yeah, thank you. Is it great? Oh, no, it's, 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 I think it's a wonderful, wonderful story. And if anyone watching this hasn't read it yet, I, I can't recommend it highly enough. Awesome. Okay, so I got to hit you up. What do you have for me this time? Oh, book recommendations. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, I t you know, I'll tell you, I'll tell you the, the book that I've been, I've actually been listening to it while I've been walking the dog is um, Malcolm Gladwell's new book, Talking to Strangers, uh, which is, um, it's all about the problems we have as human beings recognizing strangers. And, you know, Harry Markopoulos is in the book, um, but, it, but it, it, it deals with a phenomenon called default to truth, which, um, 
human beings have, we, we, we tend to, our default is to believe that people are telling us the truth, which is why, you know, it's, it's so tough to spot liars. And it's a fascinating book. I, I would, I would recommend the audio book because it's, um, the way he's done it is it's not just him reading the book. He, you know, the interviews of people he's put in the book, he plays you the tapes of the interviews. It's an incredibly immersive experience, but it, I think it, I think it's, um, if, if you listen to it or read it through the lens of an investor, I think you'll find it very useful in terms of the next phase of these markets where I suspect we're going to go back to where we were in the late 90s when, you know, kind of the Enron phase where suddenly the, the famous, you know, Buffett, when the tide goes out, you find out who's swimming naked. That feels to me like one of the next phases we're going to go through. And so understanding how to recognize when people are lying and understanding how uh, strangers can deceive you, I think is going to be, a, sadly, a useful skill to kind of burnish. So I, I would I would definitely give you that recommendation. I've just finished it. It's a, it's a tremendous book. Okay, cool. I'll pick it up uh, right when we get off this call. I like it. Uh, sounds like it adds some useful tools to the tool belt. So I think so. Yeah, I do. I really think so. Okay. Now, uh, where can people find you? I know you're at grant-williams.com, correct? Yeah. Th yes, indeed. I just launched a new website. I've been a long time coming and it's been uh, overdue and I'm delighted with it. The website is grant-williams.com and you'll find uh, my podcast series there and you'll find uh, things that make you go home. You can uh, find out everything you need to know. There's a bunch of my presentations on there. It's all there in one place, finally. Awesome. Okay. That's great. Look, Grant, it's been great catching up with you. Thanks so much for your time. Anytime, mate. Good to see you as always. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor. Follow or subscribe to this podcast. Drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.